0: You are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also teach theology, New Testament, and Old Testament at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope you're having a great summer. Hey, podcast listeners, I just want to remind you of the book that I've released in the past few months called Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel. Um, you can find that on Amazon. Uh, if you go there, uh, it's available in Kindle edition as well as hardback and paperback. Um, just go check it out. I'd love for you to, to read it, to, to review it. I um, I had a great time uh, writing the book. The, the foreword's written by Dr. Jeff Orge. He's the president of Gateway Seminary. Um, it was also endorsed by uh, Dr. Jim Shaddix at Southeastern Seminary, the preaching professor. Also Dr. York, who is at Southern. Many of you know as well as many others have endorsed it as well. And so go to Amazon and check out uh, my new book, Your Identity in the Trinity. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort. And so you can go back and look at that first or listen to that first uh, podcast we did that kind of set forth a historical framework as to why the controversy happened and the need to convene the Synod of Dort in the Netherlands. Um, Let me just kind of briefly give you a history. Uh, The followers of Jacob Arminius, uh, Arminians, um, in 1610, uh, 40 or so Arminians got together and drafted the five articles of the Remonstrants, uh, the protests. Uh, They were protesting or they were speaking out against the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism, which articulated the traditional Reformed theology of the Dutch church. And so there were some controversies and some debates, and then it wasn't until eight years later, in 1618, on November 13th, that the Dutch church called together the Senate of Dort to convene, to discuss these issues, to kind of iron out the disagreements. And so... On December 13th and on December 17th, the remonstrants gave what they call the sententia, or otherwise known as the opinion of the remonstrants. It was delivered giving their view, uh, interacting with Reformed theology. Uh, there were some more debates, and it wasn't really until May 29th of 1619 that the Senate of Dort had its closing session. And so on the first two podcasts, we dealt with the first main point of doctrine, which was the doctrine of predestination or unconditional election. And so the second main point of doctrine deals with the atonement, the extent of the atonement, the intent of the atonement. Basically, the question for whom did Christ die? Ultimately, it can be boiled down to, Did Jesus die on the cross to make salvation merely possible or did Jesus actually redeem a particular people on the cross, making propitiation for them specifically in his body while dying there at Calvary? And so what I do like about the articles of the Canon of Dort under the second main point of doctrine is that they don't just jump right in and deal with limited atonement or particular redemption. They begin by Talking about the similarities that all evangelical Christians should have, which is that God is a just God, God is a holy God, and His His righteousness needs to be demonstrated by there being um, a payment for sin. Sin must be punished. And so, because God's holy, because sin is a grievous offense against God, that sin needs to be punished. And how did God do that? God sent Jesus Christ to make satisfaction for that sin, to absorb that punishment. And so that's really what Articles 1 and 2 deal with. And then Article, you you keep going on, and then I really like Article number 5. Before they even get to the extent or the intent of the atonement, they make some caveats that I think are really important. Um, Article 5, I think, is very, very important for Reformed people, for Calvinists, especially those of us who believe strongly in evangelism. Um, I just got back from about 11 to 10, 11 to, well, the whole trip was about, well, it was about 12 days when it was all said and done, going to a, uh, on a mission trip to a closed country. I cannot mention that on on a podcast here just for security reasons, but we did evangelism. I did street evangelism. I went out and engaged lost people and had gospel conversations and proclaimed the gospel there on the streets multiple times in villages. Um, and so going to, especially to unreached people groups with the gospel, it's very, very important. Uh, it's, it's very much the heartbeat of who I am as a as a pastor, as a person, as a Christian, and also the heartbeat of our church. And so just listen to Article 5. It says, Moreover, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in His good pleasure sends the gospel. So, just because we believe as Calvinists in a particular redemption or that Christ died to make salvation secure for the elect does not mean that we don't go out and share the gospel indiscriminately with all people. Again, we don't know the identity of the elect. We're not given insight into that. That's the secret counsel of God. What we're commanded to do is to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation without exception, without discrimination. We go to all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. We go out and sow the gospel seed to the lost wherever we find them, telling them to repent and believe and that there is a promise for all those who do believe in Jesus Christ they will have eternal life and not perish now we get to article 8 of the second main point of doctrine on the atonement and this is where it discusses the effectiveness of Christ's death so let's read article 8 for it was The entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of His Son's costly death should work itself out in all the elect in order that God might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, "...should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to Him by the Father. That Christ should grant them faith, which like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts He acquired for them by His death. It was also God's will that Christ should cleanse them by His blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith." that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. That's a very clear articulation of God's intention and um, not only the intention of the atonement, what was God's intent, but also the effectiveness of of, for whom it it was for. Um, God had... A plan through the cross of Christ to save the elect and only the elect without fail through the cross. So, what the canons of Dort are arguing is that Jesus' death on the cross procured, secured, bought, obtained the actual redemption of the elect. Those who were given to Jesus before the foundation of the world by the Father, when Jesus came and died on the cross, it was God's intention and it was Christ's intention for Jesus to die only, solely for those chosen before the foundation of the world and for them only, and to infallibly secure their salvation. And it's not just limited to the Jews only, but every tribe. Nation, language, and people. Now, let me just read to you what the Remonstrants gave in their opinion, the Sententia. Again, this was their response to the argument, and so they're going to argue for what we would call a universal atonement, or that Christ died for all people. So let me read to them um, their response. It's called the universality of the merit of Christ. Here's what they say. "...the price of redemption which Christ offered to His Father is in and of itself not only sufficient for the redemption of the whole human race, but it also has, through the decree, the will and grace of God the Father, been paid for all men and every man." And therefore no one is by absolute and antecedent decree of God positively excluded from all participation in the fruits of the death of Christ. Okay, so what they do right there is they make a very clear statement that Jesus' death was for all and every man and that God did not have a sovereign decree of election that excluded some from the benefits of Christ's saving work. It was a universal atonement whereby Jesus paid for the sins of all and every man. They on to say Christ by the merit of his death has thus far reconciled God the Father to the whole of mankind that he can and will without injury to his justice and truth enter into, a, enter into and establish a new covenant of grace with sinners and men obnoxious to damnation. Though Christ has merited for all men And every man reconciliation with God and forgiveness of sins, yet according to the tenor of terms of the new and gracious covenant, no man is really made a partaker of the benefits procured by the death of Christ in any way other than through faith. Neither are the trespasses and offenses of sinful men forgiven prior to their actually and truly believing in Christ. Now what they do here is they protect from universalism. Now, universalism is the idea that just because Jesus died on the cross, therefore all people will be saved in the end. They protect that in their opinion of the remonstrance by saying that even though Jesus died on the cross for all people, those people are not actually saved until they place personal faith in Christ. So they have to, by their own faith, Receive the benefits of what Christ paid for them. But their argument is that Jesus paid for all and every man on the cross, whereby all men have the potential of being saved. And that's really the crux of the issue between the two two views. Um, In the Arminian scheme, Jesus Christ died on the cross to make salvation possible. He did not save or die in the place or propitiate himself or substitute himself for any particular person. It was a general atonement made to satisfy God's justice, but He did not die in the place of any particular sinner. He just made salvation possible. In time, when you hear the gospel and through your faith you believe, then you thereby receive the benefits of of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, the Reformed view says when Jesus died on the cross, he was actually in his body on the tree propitiating the wrath of God for the elect. He was redeeming the elect. He was actually not just making salvation a possibility or a potentiality or a, or a hypothetical uh, situation whereby nobody would ever come to faith in Christ if they didn't use their free will, but Jesus actually literally, bona fidely, if that's a word, died in the place of particular sinners, infallibly ensuring that they would be saved and come to faith. So this is kind of a controversial issue, the whole issue of, I don't like the term limited atonement because I think it's confusing. I prefer the term definite atonement or particular redemption. And so let's let's. Um, Just dive into this and look at some texts, some passages of Scripture. And I'm not going to go into all the passages of Scripture because I want to keep this podcast fairly short. Um, I've done other podcasts on limited atonement, but um, let's just ask the question because this is the way the question has historically been framed. It may be asked in two ways For whom did Christ die? Okay, that's the extent of the atonement. Second question, what was Christ's intention or purpose when he died on the cross? So there's the intent. So you have the extent of the atonement, for whom did Christ die, and the intent, what was Christ's purpose? Or ultimately, what was the triune God's purpose in this? Because it was part of the eternal covenant of redemption. Now, the Arminian answer to this question is that Jesus died on the cross to make salvation possible For all people everywhere, and the atonement only becomes effective for those people once they repent and trust in Jesus. The Calvinistic answer is that Jesus died on the cross to actually secure the salvation of all the elect, and that the atonement actually purchased for them the gifts of repentance and faith to even accept Christ as Savior. Now, you can go to some of these passages of Scripture where Matthew one twenty one, she will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew 20.28, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, I've often heard those that don't hold to particular redemption say, those verses really don't prove anything. When you say Jesus died for the sheep and Jesus died for his people and, and Jesus died uh, for many, that doesn't, doesn't mean that the other people that he died for aren't included in that list. Just because Jesus died for his people or died for sheep, that's not proving that it's a limited atonement. That's just making a statement of who that category of people is. And so um, they'll go to those passages of Scripture and say, that, you know, those, those passages of Scripture don't really uh, convince me that Jesus died for a particular people. But what I want to do is I want us to understand some scriptures that would lead us to understand this in maybe a deeper way. And so, Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, to god by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life how were we reconciled to god we were reconciled by the death of his son so here's the question did christ's death actually reconcile every person who ever lived or did his death on the cross actually Reconcile us to God. Now notice what that passage says and doesn't say. Because oftentimes we want to insert faith as a condition to get us reconciled to God. Paul does not say in Romans 5:10, For if while we were reconciled, we were enemy, or if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by our faith in what Jesus did for us. It's not what he says. We were reconciled by the death of Christ. So the death of Christ actually reconciled us. It's not when we place our faith in Jesus that we are actually reconciled. Now, experientially, that that is true. But ultimately, the question is, is our faith what activates the benefits of the atonement, or did Christ actually purchase all the benefits ever needed for the elect on the cross, including the faith that we would need to actually come to Him? We have to be very careful with the language of the Bible because it doesn't say that when we choose Jesus and when we exercise our faith, then we're reconciled to God. No, Paul makes a categorical statement that the death of His Son reconciled us to the Father. Now, if that's true... Is that true for every single person who's ever lived? Is every single person actually reconciled to the Father? And you say, well, no, obviously not. You have to choose. Only those who have faith in Christ are reconciled. Yes, that's true. But what we're saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, He actually reconciled. He actually reconciled the elect to the Father through that death and actually purchased everything needed to actually bring that sinner to complete salvation, including the repentance and faith needed in order to be saved. Jesus even purchased those as gifts on the cross. Now, where do we see that? Well, Romans eight thirty two through 33 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, when Paul says that God gave up Jesus for us all, in the context there of Romans chapter 8, he's talking about the elect. He's not talking about all people without exception, he's talking about the elect. Does God graciously give to every single person who's ever lived all things as a result of the atonement? No, He doesn't. Now, let's look at Hebrews because I like the imagery that Hebrews gives of the atonement because Hebrews focuses, the book of Hebrews focuses on Jesus as our high priest, I think that the high priestly ministry of Jesus is one of the aspects that's missing in a lot of the discussions related to the atonement. Uh, we like to go to Paul, we like to go to John, uh, we like to go to these other places to, to understand the atonement, which is very, very important, but we often don't understand the actual role of the high priest in Israel. Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. What did the high priest in the Old Testament actually where on the Day of Atonement when he entered into the Holy of Holies to make propitiation for the sins of the people? Well, he wore an ephod. It was the, the sacred garment. And there were 12 stones embedded on the ephod to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So When he went into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice, whom was the high priest representing? Who was he praying for? Who was he offering up petitions to the Lord for? Who was he interceding for? Who was he making sacrifices for? Well, the 12 tribes of Israel, God's elect people. Was he making sacrifice for Pharaoh, the Egyptian army? Was he making sacrifices for the pagan Canaanites, the Amorites, the Edomites, the the Philistines? No. The 12 stones represented the fact that the priest was making sacrifice for the people of God only. It was a specific sacrifice for a specific group of people. In addition to sacrificing on behalf of the people, what else did the high priest do? Well, he made intercession or prayers. On behalf of the people, he was a go-between, who offered prayers to Yahweh on behalf of sinful people whom he represented. the Israelites. Did he pray for the Egyptians? Did he pray for the Canaanites? Did he pray for the Edomites? Et cetera? No. He only prayed for the Israelites. So the high priest did two particular things as the mediator of Israel. He made sacrifice to atone for their sins exclusively, and he offered prayers to God on behalf of them. Exclusively, And so the writer of Hebrews equates this role of the high priest in the Old Testament to what Jesus has done for us in his once and for all atonement on the cross. Hebrews 7, 23-25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds a priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus has saved to the uttermost. Jesus has a perpetual priesthood and Jesus always lives to make intercession. So question, for whom is Jesus Doing these things. For whom is Jesus making intercession? For whom is Jesus the mediator based upon his finished work on the cross? As our high priest, does Jesus make atonement for and intercession for the same group of people just like the ancient priest in Israel did? Yes. Here's the point. Jesus only intercedes for those for whom he specifically died. You can't divide up his atonement and his intercession. He's not going to intercede for those for whom he didn't die. So you can ask the question Is Jesus, as the high priest, accomplishing the work on the cross, always living to make intercession? on behalf of those who are in hell? Question. If Jesus died for every single person, then would not His high priestly role mean He makes intercession for every single person? And if He makes intercession for every single person and there are people that are suffering in hell for whom Jesus is making intercession, then either he failed to save them or he's not doing a very good job of interceding because they're in hell. Hebrews 9, 11-14. But when Christ, as a high priest of the good things have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? At the end of verse 12, it says that Jesus secured or obtained an eternal redemption. He obtained it. He bought it. He actually redeemed a people. Again, it goes back to that whole issue. Did Jesus die merely to make salvation possible? Did he die to make people savable? Was it a theoretical atonement in which nobody was actually saved, but there was a possibility for people to be saved based upon what Christ did? It doesn't say anything about potentiality. What does the text say? He obtained our redemption. He secured it. He actually paid for something in other words jesus got what he paid for on the cross he actually secured it now the traditional Armenian position of the atonement is called the governmental view and surprisingly historic arminians do not believe in a substitutionary atonement and where christ actually died in the place of particular sinners taking up their particular sins Substit- the, the, the language of substitutionary atonement is strictly Calvinistic Reformed language. It's not in the Arminian vocabulary. As a matter of fact, let me give you a quote from an Arminian squ- scholar named J. Kenneth Grider. Uh, he wrote this in um, the Evangelical Diction of Theology. He writes this, quote, "...a spillover from Calvinism into Arminianism has occurred in recent decades." Thus many Arminians, whose theology is not very precise, say that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Yet such a view is foreign to Arminianism, which teaches instead that Christ suffered for us. Arminians teach that what Christ did, He did for every person. Therefore, what He did could not have been to pay the penalty, since no one would then ever go into eternal hell. Arminianism teaches that Christ suffered for everyone so that the Father could forgive the ones who would repent and believe. His death is such that all will see that forgiveness is costly and will strive to cease from anarchy in the world God governs. This view is called the governmental view of the atonement. So the classical or traditional Arminian does not believe that Jesus died in the place, a substitutionary atonement, or paid for any specific sin of any particular sinner. Basically, Jesus just suffered generically to show us how much sin is a big deal to God and that sin must be dealt with. And in this view, Christ's death actually purchased nothing that guarantees the salvation of any person. Let me say that again. In the governmental Arminian view of the atonement, Christ's death purchased nothing that guarantees the salvation of any person. It only makes people savable or makes salvation possible. What this view actually teaches is that Jesus' death demonstrates what our sins deserve at the hand of a just God. And then Christ's death permits God to forgive humans on the grounds that the sinner would repent and believe in Jesus, not on the basis of the death of Christ per se. It's more, the forgiveness is more activated when you repent and believe. And so once a sinner chooses Christ, it's then that the atonement actually becomes real for them. And so think about this. In reality, Jesus could have died on the cross in the governmental Arminian view. Jesus could have died on the cross and no one hypothetically, would ever be saved. Because if his death saved no man in particular, and it doesn't become, that the atonement doesn't become activated until you actually repent and believe, and then you activate the benefits of the atonement through something you do, basically, what would happen if nobody ever used their libertarian free will to come to faith in Christ? Jesus could have died on the cross making salvation possible, but then yet nobody would actually Ever come to faith. Now that's a that's a hypothetical reality. We know that people do come to faith in Christ, but if you just look at that view, there is a there is a hypothetical reality that no one would ever come to faith in Christ. So the death of Christ on the cross did not secure or guarantee or obtain any particular sinner's redemption. It just made salvation possible. It made salvation a possibility, it made people savable. How are you saved? You use your libertarian free will to trust in Christ, and once you do that, then and only then do you receive the benefits of what Christ purchased on the cross, but not for anyone particular, just in general. So, how does this view hold up against Scripture? Especially when you look at that Greek preposition, who pair. Who pair is a little Greek preposition that has wonderful theological meaning. Um, It means on behalf of, in the place of, as a substitute for, for the sake of. That little preposition alone conveys a huge theological weight. It actually teaches substitutionary atonement where Jesus actually did die in the place of sinners. Now, let's just go to some texts. 2 Corinthians 521, for our sake, who pair, Greek preposition, for our sake, on our behalf, in our place, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, who pair, on my behalf, in my place. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us who pair. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. How can Paul say that Christ became a curse for us if Jesus' death was only a potential reality? And where he suffered, but he never actually died in the place of anyone in particular? Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her who pair on her behalf in her place, in our place. 1 Thessalonians 5.9-10 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us who pair in our place so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Titus 2.14 Jesus who gave himself for us who pair in our place to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Now here's my argument for particular redemption and it's echoed in the canons of Dort. Either Jesus actually propitiated God's wrath on the cross or he didn't. He made it possible, but He didn't actually do it. Either Jesus actually accomplished redemption by purchasing a people in particular, or He didn't. He just suffered and made it possible. Either Jesus literally actually became a curse in the place of particular sinners, or He he didn't. Either Jesus reconciled us as sinners to the Father on the cross, or He didn't. He just made it possible. In other words, It was either a full, completed, it is finished atonement where Jesus accomplished everything necessary to purchase a people or it was a hypothetical, it was a potentiality where he suffered to make people savable, make salvation possible and the condition for you to get in on those benefits is for you to use your libertarian free will to exercise saving faith. Let's think about it even further. If God's wrath was propitiated for every single person who ever lived and Jesus accomplished redemption for every single person who ever lived and Jesus became a curse for every single person who ever lived and Jesus reconciled to the Father every single person who ever lived on the cross when he died, then I have a very basic question. Why are there people Suffering in hell right now. If their sins were atoned for, if God's wrath was absorbed on their behalf, Jesus died in their place as a curse, if they were reconciled on the cross, then they're suffering what we would call double jeopardy. They're suffering for sins that have already been paid for by Jesus. And this would be unjust because... Either their sins were propitiated or they're not. Now, at this point, let me give you the typical response that's given by those who do not hold to a particular redemption, to those who believe that Jesus died for every single person who's ever lived, is living, and will live. The typical response goes something like this. Well, it's obvious, Pastor Sean, Jesus did atone for every single person. Jesus did die in their place. Jesus did propitiate God's wrath on their behalf. But the reason they go to hell is because they didn't choose to receive what Jesus accomplished for them. He died for them. He did everything necessary. He did all those things, but they didn't accept the gift. The gift's been selected. The gift's been paid for. No one can be forced to accept the gift. In other words, Jesus paid for the gift of eternal life on the cross for the entire world, but there's a lot of people, many will not be saved because they simply don't accept his gift. It was paid for, bought and paid for, like a new car in a showroom, but they never went in with the coupon and they never went in and asked for the gift and and got it. In other words, all those things that Jesus did on the cross didn't really accomplish anything particular. There still has to be a secondary thing. Somebody has to go actually accept the gift before it becomes real. The atonement doesn't become real. It doesn't become activated. It doesn't become bona fide for a sinner until the sinner repents and believes. And once they do that, once they accept the gift, then the atonement becomes real for them. Up until that point, it's just a potentiality. It's been made for them, but they don't actually get the benefits of it until they cash in. And they go to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus. Now, This brings up some problems because, let me just ask a question. Do we believe that Jesus died for all sins? In other words, is there a sin out there that Jesus didn't die for? Because what they've just argued in their response, they may not know it, that they're making this argument, but what they're saying is that there's one sin for which Jesus didn't die. The reason a person goes to hell, the reason the person's suffering is because they didn't choose Jesus. They didn't accept the gift. They died in unbelief. So there's one sin for which Jesus didn't pay for. Obviously, he did not die for the sin of unbelief. Every other single sin Jesus died for on the cross, but there's one unbelief, rejection, not choosing him that wasn't covered by his blood. Because if, if he died for every single sin even the sin of not believing in Him, that person should be covered. So you're left with some options. And this isn't isn't originating with me. This is directly from John Owen. If you've read his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, you have three options. Number one, either Jesus died for all the sins of all men. Number two, either Jesus died for all the sins of some men, Or number three, either Jesus died for some of the sins of all men. If number three, if Jesus died for some of the sins of all men, then those men have some sins to answer for. And in that case, no one would be saved. Let me just give you a quote from John Owen in his his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. He says, quote, Why are not all free from the punishment of all their sins? You will say because of their unbelief, they will not believe. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment due to it or not. If so, then why must that hinder them more than their sins for which he died from partaking of the fruit of his death? If he did not, then he did not die for all their sins. Here's, my, here's the only tenable conclusion in my mind. It's the position of the Senate of DeWord. It's the reformed position. If Jesus died for all the sins of all people, except unbelief, then he did not die for all the sins of anybody. And so everybody must be condemned. There's no other position except that he died for the sins of his elect people only. Now let me give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon in a sermon he preached in 1858 called particular redemption. I have hurried over that to come to the last point, which is the sweetest of all. Jesus Christ, we are told in our text, came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatness of Christ's redemption may be measured by the extent of the design of it. He gave his life, a ransom for many. I must now return to that controverted point again. We're often told, I mean, those of us who are commonly nicknamed by the title of Calvinists, and we are not very much ashamed of that. We think that Calvin, after all, knew more about the gospel than almost any uninspired man who's ever lived. We're often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Armenians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die as so to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. They're obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. We say then, we will just go back to the old statement. Christ did not die so as beyond a doubt to secure the salvation of anybody, did he? You must say, no. You're obliged to say so, for you believe that even after a man has been pardoned, he may yet fall from grace and perish. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved but are saved, must be saved and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You're welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Okay, it's like, okay, Spurgeon, tell us what you you really believe about that. So there's a difference in the understanding of the intent of the atonement, what was God's intent, and the extent of the atonement for whom did Christ die. And so as we think about the summary here, let's just read Article 9, the last article in the second main point of doctrine on the atonement. This plan, arising out of God's eternal love for the elect, from the beginning of the world to the present time, has been powerfully carried out and will also be carried out in the future, the gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result, the elect are gathered into one, all in their own time, And there's always a church of believers found on Christ's blood, a church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, and here and in all eternity praises him as her Savior who laid down his life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for his bride. Again, the Synod of Dort, the the Remonstrants, the Arminians, they believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he brought people into a relationship with god and made salvation possible available but that what jesus did on the cross in itself did not infallibly ensure that anyone would actually be saved so the Synod of dort on the other hand teaches that the application of redemption cannot be separated from the accomplishment of redemption in other words What God intended to do and what God actually, and what Christ actually achieved are one and the same. Jesus died for those given to him by the Father and did everything infallibly to secure their redemption. So, as we think about the cross, we can get, again, tied up into the weeds and argue about these minor points of doctrine related to the extent and intent of the atonement. And it's a a fun intramural debate. But I think the main thing that we want to camp out on is that sinners are separated from a holy God. And the only way to be reconciled to the Father is through what Jesus Christ alone did on the cross. He propitiated God's wrath. He obtained redemption, bought us. He reconciled us when we were enemies of God and brought us into a right relationship. He became a curse for us. He bore in his body on the tree the the justice and penalty that was due to us so that we might be forgiven. We might be saved. We might have eternal life and not perish. So when we go out and preach the gospel, we don't necessarily say, Jesus died for you, therefore believe in him. What we say is, in the gospel, Christ Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, and he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so the command for you today is to repent and believe in Jesus, to come to Jesus, to place your faith in Jesus, in the person of Christ. And when you do that, the Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Have you repented of your sins and placed yourself solely at the mercy of Jesus. You will find him to be an all-sufficient, perfect, and powerful Savior who accomplished everything necessary to bring about the redemption of his people. He stands ready, willing, and able to receive all who would come to him in repentance and faith. Would you place your faith in Jesus today, If you have not, what better day than now? Maybe you're listening to this podcast and you've never heard heard me before and you've never heard these truths. I can't take for granted that you've heard these things or even if you've you've listened to this podcast for many years that you're a believer. Place your faith in Jesus. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm so thankful that you took the time to listen to our podcast today. May God bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you. Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.